TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with graphic novelist Chris Ware about how Charles Schultz, George Harriman, and Art Spiegelman figured into his life and career and why empathy is fundamental to his work. When I was in school, some of my teachers told me, like, oh, you can't write about women because then you're colonizing them with your eyes or whatever. And that seems ridiculous to me. I mean, that's what writing is about. It's about trying to understand other people. Here's Debbie Millman. Chris Ware has a new book out. Or kind of. The book, Building Stories, is really a box It opens up to reveal 14 beautiful little objects, sort of like the future relics of the printing industry. There are broadsheet newspapers, a comic strip, a pamphlet, a magazine, a hardcover, a board game, even a little golden book with that shiny binding. Each object contains a story about the inhabitants of the same three-story Chicago brownstone, from an amputee on the third floor to a bee in the window box. There's no real chronological order to the series, no beginning and no end. It's an ambitious book, more than a decade's worth of work, and it's already being called a classic. Chris Ware, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So is it true that when you were a child... You connected so deeply with Charlie Brown that you sent him a valentine? That is true. Yes, I did. I made him. I just felt really bad that he'd never got any valentines, so I made him one and gave it to my mother to send to him, and she put it in the place where all letters that are addressed to fictional characters go, which I'm not exactly sure where that is, but it, clearly he never received it. But it's a testament to Charles Schultz's power as a cartoonist and artist that I think he's able to... And, was able to instill that feeling in uh, in readers. And uh, I've said this before, but I think he's the first cartoonist to ever create a sense of empathy in his readers for his characters. 
And you were born in Omaha, Nebraska, Mm -hmm. where I understand that you were first inspired by reading Peanuts paperbacks in your grandmother's basement, Mm -hmm. where you had an unlimited access to 1970s television, and also a local neighborhood cartoonist who worked for your grandfather (laughs) at the Omaha World Herald newspaper. That is true, yeah. Uh, There was a cartoonist who lived down the street from us uh, named Hank Barrow, who I think originally was from Louisiana, and he's an incredibly talented uh, artist. He drew with a brush and sort of a loose, I don't know what a good approximation would be, maybe kind of Walt Kelly or Will Eisner. I'm trying to think of somebody that people would understand. And uh, I started taking piano lessons before we had a piano in our house, and he and his wife Kay used to let me come by and practice on their piano, and then he would draw pictures for me and just kind of entertain me and I'd take me up to his drawing room and I saw his drawing table. He's a very kind of a salty guy with a gravelly voice who smoked all day long. He was bald and had like a handlebar mustache, just a really kind of affable, friendly character. Chris, when people ask you what you do for a living, what do you say? I usually just say I'm a cartoonist because it seems to explain the most uh, and uh, it's the least pretentious word, I think, it's kind of a disarming word. If I say I'm a graphic novelist, then it seems to be a little... I mean, even though that might, in today's world, that might be a little more descriptive of what myself and Charles Burns and Art Spiegelman do. But uh, generally, I like the word cartoonist because it sounds more like what I do actually is. So it also sometimes people say, oh, that sounds fun, you know, even though it's really not that fun. Now, I understand that you actually have a problem with the phrase graphic novel. And, and you said that it, <laughs> it sounds as if it's referring to a book with an X-rated or at least overly explicit content and that when you hear the term graphic novel, it makes you think of Lady Chatterley's lover. Right. And that's not my joke. That's Dan Klaus's joke. So I think Marjan Satrapi started repeating that and giving me credit <laughs> for it. But that's originally Dan's joke. But uh, it is sort of true. I mean, you say graphic novel, it sounds like a filthy book. So I mean, I mean, which is not necessarily inaccurate when it comes to the stuff that I do and some of my contemporaries and peers do. But uh, it's a word for better or for worse that's come to mean comics that are for better or for worse serious or aimed at adults or for a literate audience. So I've come to accept it thusly. I mean, the word comic book itself really is, if you take it apart into its constituent words and try to figure out what it means, it doesn't give any indication of what an actual comic book is. So it just refers to cheap books that are supposed to be funny. So I have some old uh, minstrel songsters from I think about 1840 or 50 that have advertisements on the back for comic books and that is referring to a song pamphlet of of joke lyrics so I don't know how the word eventually came to mean collections of comic strips but it did so. When did you first realize that you wanted to be a cartoonist? When I was a kid, certainly. I remember when I was around 11 years old, I submitted some pages to this Charlton comic book that I, for some reason, thought was soliciting submissions, but I'm pretty sure that wasn't the case. I just uh, already early on was deluding myself. and But I can distinctly recall thinking, if I could only have my own comic book, then I would be happy. So um, Wow. But, and did and they I, ever respond to your submission? No, they didn't, which is, you know, it makes perfect sense. I was 11 or 12, so... I used to go visit the World Herald with my mom when she would go in on the weekends to work on a story or something and pass by the guys in the art department. There was this really nice guy named Mike Drummy, and he'd be in there working on an illustration that was due the next week or something. And Just just watching these guys work and, and how deftly they work and 
they seemed to be kind of in control of their world in a way that that appealed to me and they you know it seemed like a fun job and i like the smell of the the printing presses and the sound because all the printing presses were on the first floor and the whole whole uh, building kind of rumbled when they were running so so i understand getting back to for for one more moment that you said that a comic strip is good for telling jokes and for looking down on characters. But in Charles Schultz's work, you always felt through his characters mm-hmm. and that his work had no beginning, no ending, just a feeling. And I, as I was going through all of your books and especially reading Building Stories, I felt very much the same sense that there was no beginning and no ending really, just a, a supreme level of feelings. Well, it's very nice of you. Thank you. Well, yeah, I... I actually don't remember saying that about Charles Schultz, but I guess it sounds... I mean, when you're only dealing with four panels, it's a very kind of a small uh, chunk or slice of of reality. And, of course, he was dealing with jokes. But there is something... I mean, there's something about comics that it's very... It's convenient for telling jokes because you as the reader are safely placed above this little world of people um, saying things to each other and or being mean to each other. And I think starting in the 1960s, cartoonists started to figure out ways of telling other things with comics and creating other emotions. I mean, for a long time, and maybe it's almost still the case, it's the only art form that anybody would come to expecting a very specific emotional reaction. You don't watch a television show expecting to be angry, you know, or go to a movie expecting to feel sad. But uh, I think, you know, comics can produce and communicate the same myriad of emotions that any other art form can. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I know that when you won the Guardian First Book Award, you stated that as a cartoonist, one isn't used to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And have you found that you've had problems with people taking your work seriously? That was probably a whiny thing to say, and I regret saying it now, but it's still at the same time it was true at that time. It was starting to change right around then, and I don't think it's legitimate really to say anymore. I think over the past decade, certainly cartoonists have come to be taken more seriously, probably simply because the people who have been reading our stuff have aged right along with us. So, But when I was in graduate school, there definitely I had some teachers who just assumed because what I did was printed, they assumed that it was done for somebody else, that it was under the direction of somebody else or that I was being told somehow to do it or that it was being done purely to make money. So sometimes it was a little difficult to to somehow communicate no i'm just writing these stories myself you don't first of all you don't really make money as a cartoonist it's not something anybody should go into to to make a living at the big bucks yeah right it's just not going to happen so um but at the same time i had some wonderful teachers who were extremely encouraging and uh at the same time too in art school it was difficult sometimes to find teachers who would actually read a story. They'd be more apt to look at a page or consider it compositionally or even consider how it was printed rather than, well, it's also a story. It's intended to be read. There's a lot of press being written about you now with the introduction of of building stories in the marketplace. And in a recent New Yorker article, you were asked about your upbringing and, and you stated that you were a real nerd and that you kept to yourself. You were afraid of being punched in the hallway in between classes, waiting for your male body to arrive, which you feel never really quite did. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's true. It's a good thing this isn't television. So, yeah. 
Well, and then you sighed in the article and you continued and said, it's a story that most cartoonists can tell. We're endemically nostalgic people who turn our lives over and over and over again, trying to figure out how we went wrong and fix things or control them, make sense of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, Chris, has your work helped you make sense of anything? I don't know. That's, uh, yeah, I guess I, sit, I should say it should, and I feel great now. I mean, I guess in a way. Um, what has it helped you make sense of? I guess there's, uh, you know, maybe there's some th- somebody wrote me a letter once. I don't remember who it was, sadly, but they accused me of rewriting my own childhood and going back in time and trying to protect this uh, a memory of myself somehow. And when I read the letter, I thought, well, that's really mean. And then an hour later, I thought, well, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> They're exactly right, you know. In what so, way were they right? Well, it is sort of true. I think at least for my generation and, and maybe Charles Schultz as well, there's something about maybe it's a certain measure of control or of sitting at a table and looking back on one's life and turning things over and over again. I find that when I'm inking especially, I will enter the zone of remembering perceived past whatevers that, you know, it's whether they're true or not, they're still alive in my consciousness. And uh, I think from what I've read of interviews with Charles Schultz, he felt sort of along similar lines. He was very attached to memories of his childhood and kept all his yearbooks and kept track of what his friends were doing and what they'd, you know, gone on to. And of course, the famous the fact that we all know who the little red-haired girl is and was and the fact that he felt spurned and that that's almost become a part of American myth now is kind of interesting. So, Now, in addition to the Peanuts, I understand that you loved Crazy Cat. Mm-hmm. And when you were attending the University of Texas in Austin, you and your friend John Keene would drive to small-town antique stores looking for old newspapers with the strip. Mm-hmm. What did you love most about Crazy Cat? Early on, the thing I liked about it most is that I just simply couldn't figure out what it was about. It took my reading about it and and having it explained to me really what I think George Harriman was trying to do. Um, I think the racial content of it is actually much more prominent than maybe it seems now in in contemporary readings of it, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Uh, I think definitely Crazy Cat was supposed to be African-American. She's frequently shown holding a banjo and her patois, the word that's frequently used to describe the way she speaks, I think is supposed to be distinctly African-American. And uh, I think that it was a pretty pointed racial parable. So um, I was introduced to it by a fellow my mom was going out with when I was about 13, 14 years old, who also happened to be interested in ragtime and piano rolls, and he sort of got me interested in all this sort of stuff. And you collect a lot of ragtime ephemera and materials, yeah. a lot being an understatement. Well, I used to. Now, since my daughter was born, I, I don't really anymore. So, But, um, yeah, it was more just an attempt to try to understand that particular time in American history has sort of shrunk through the lens of the 1970s when I was growing up. Anybody who's my age is intimately familiar with ragtime and Scott Joplin because it was everywhere when, when we were kids. So, And how would you say, if at all, Crazy Cat influenced your work? Well, first of all, compositionally, Harriman's characters lived on the page in a way that no other cartoon characters have, partly as a function of his presentation of, of characters in a sort of theatrical setting where, though the backgrounds change, the size of the characters don't change. There's no camera movement. He stuck very much to the early idea of, of what 
comics could be as a as a as a magazine. But even if you go back to the 1880s and Victorian comics, there's no sense of of a camera that comes in later in the 1930s and 40s. And on top of that, just simply the poetic ambiguity of the strip itself and the fact that it tied into something that could quite possibly be extremely personal for George Harriman because he was a mixed-race heritage and in very almost unconsciously involves so many strange influences of his childhood and experience of growing up in New Orleans. So it's a very, very personal strip. It seems very human in a way that other strips yeah. haven't. And looking at them and trying to understand how they might have influenced your work, I thought that there was a certain kind of humanity in them that felt very raw and real, which is something I have been experiencing looking at your work in the last couple of weeks preparing for the show. And in his strip, too, it can only exist as a comic strip. I mean, there was a ballet and there have been animated cartoons, but none of them really make sense. It has to be printed on the page and it has to come alive in your mind to really work. He somehow manages to capture the sort of core violent engine of, of vaudeville or something to express his deep human truths about wanting to be loved and there's something about it there that's you can't really put it into words, which is what makes it so great. It just is what it is. It's its own unstable aesthetic molecule. You first started publishing comics every week for the Daily Texan Mm -hmm. when you were in school. That's right. Um, It was the country's largest university newspaper. And from what I understand, it was here that you began developing Quimby the Mouse and an early version of Jimmy Corrigan, the Mm -hmm. smartest kid on earth. How did you come up with these amazing, incredible characters? And why? I don't know. They're not amazing. I was just trying to come up with something that was somehow human or meaningful. I mean, early on, I... uh it's painful to talk about because it's also bad. But uh, I did a daily strip for a while. And again, the fellow you mentioned earlier, John Keane, was doing a strip at the same time and we sort of inspired each other and influenced each other. But I was specifically trying to go for something that was more human and hopefully meaningful and potent. And at the same time, I was in art school and trying to do big arty paintings and I was making sculptures, etc. And so I was leading almost sort of a double life of uh, of making things for my art classes and then doing comics at the same time. So, um, you know, I can't even answer that question. I it was just you conjured up these characters; they well, just popped out of your yeah, when, consciousness. It, I mean, I was taking five classes so frequently. I'd have a an exam that I'd have to study for or a paper to write, and then I'd have to draw my comic strip at the same time. So frequently, it was just whatever I could think of. You know, in a way, it was really an effective sort of mental boot camp or something of just trying to dredge something out of your mind in some way that hopefully had some, was publishable in some way, and frequently it was not. But fortunately, the editors of the paper didn't really mind. So, When you were at school, your work came to the attention of raw editor Art Spiegelman, most famously known for the graphic novel series Mouse. Can you tell us a bit about how that happened? I mean, he just called you one day out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And and I, I also understand that much to your horror, as you put it, he just called you up and asked you to see some of your stuff. And yeah. had, first of all, why did you experience horror? And second of all, like, what's it like to just like, hey, it's Art Spiegelman on the phone. <laughs> did you think it was a prank? Or? I, yeah, no, I did. I, I mean, I've been reading his stuff for years. I first found Raw Magazine in the back room of the Dragon's Lair, which is the uh, comic shop in Omaha, Nebraska. My grandmother used to 
drive me to and wait in the car. Well, I went and perused and looked for superhero comics, but the owner then started letting me into the back room where I was really basically looking for pornography. And then I would look through the <laughs> fine, like, underground comics. And one day there was a magazine sticking up with the word raw. And I thought, oh, boy, I found it. You know, I pulled it up and it was like drawings by Yosvarta and Avery Mullen. And it was not pornography, much to my disappointment. But I either bought it then or I came back and got it then later. And that's when I first started reading Art's work because, of course, he was the editor along with Francoise Milly, and that's where he was serializing Mouse. And I brought all that with me to college, uh, and Art was really the the single example of, of somebody trying to do something in comics that was genuinely serious and human and powerful. And uh, I even remember my in my freshman dorm room folding up pieces of paper to make a mouse-sized pamphlet and starting, I think, okay, now I'm going to start on my graphic novel. You know, I drew like maybe a page and a half. I can't even remember what it was about. It was horribly embarrassing. So then by the time he actually called me up, I was living in a $195 a month apartment in a like a crappy 50s building. And uh, he said, yeah, this is Art Spiegelman. I saw your, he had seen it on the back of a piece of um, Newsprint that uh, I think somebody a, had given it to him. It was to look a, at. it was a review of Mouse, and then on the back of it, then was a mention or, or maybe even one of my strips. I don't exactly know, but it was back when clipping services still existed. So, and um, I don't remember the content of the conversation at all, other than I probably didn't know what to say, and I was you know stupefied. And then I immediately called my friend John Keane afterwards, and I said, I can't believe who just called. So, and then from that point on, Art and I have been great friends. So I'm actually going to see him this afternoon. He's one of my very best friends in the world, and I owe him my life. So he's a wonderfully generous man. In 1991, you moved to Chicago to pursue a master's degree in printmaking. That sounds so serious, yes. <laughs> At the Art Institute of Chicago. And I read that the experience instilled a deep suspicion of all forms of theory and criticism about art and writing in you. Is that true? Good Lord. Where, uh, I've got to be careful more about what I say. <laughs> well, No, you don't. <laughs> At the same time, it is sort of true. I think I found a slight difference between the University of Texas and the Art Institute, probably due simply to the fact I was going from an undergraduate program to a graduate program. And I would think an undergraduate program is simply going to be more open-ended and more, you know, whatever you want to do, let's try it and see what happens. Whereas graduate school, there's more of a sense of what are you doing? You really need to figure it out. We've only got two years. so. But yes, I... Uh, I mean, all I ever wanted to do was to try to write comics that were moving and somehow communicated real human experience in some way or another, whether that seemed overly complex and reflecting the multi-layers of consciousness or just simply trying to recreate a feeling of a broken heart or whatever on the page. So, And sometimes you're not always going to find the most receptive audience, and that's fine, and it was a good lesson to learn. I was sort of paralyzed for a second thinking about the notion of recording the emotion of your heartbreaking in in your work because that was quite a regular feeling that I experienced going through building stories. And so I want to talk a little bit about building stories. It's hard to refer to as a book because it feels like it's so much more than a book. It's 14 individual pieces that tell the remarkable interlocking stories of the residents in a Chicago apartment building. Mm -hmm. Hard to imagine how that's going to work on Kindle or an iPad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it will. Um, And and these pieces contain the story of the lives 
of these normal people, mm-hmm. not, not particularly um, remarkable in any way. Mm-hmm. Was there a strategy for how you decided what piece was going to be a book, what piece was going to be booklets, what was going to be the board game? Somewhat, but not really. I mean, it, mostly it was just what felt right to me as I was working on it. Originally, I thought that the book would be fragmented along the lines of the characters within the building itself, but as it became clear that the book was seen entirely through the the consciousness of that one character, then uh, I decided to let it go more in that direction. So all of the stories that seem like they're told objectively are actually told through her, and in some cases are actually creative writing projects that she does for a creative writing class. So that character... Is that described that, anywhere? In... It's not described, but it's implied. There's okay. a, There's a section where she's taking a creative writing class yes. and one of the uh, members of the creative writing class directly criticizes a particular strip that either the reader might have read or is just about to read. So, But the main character is, is deliberately left unnamed. She's an amputee. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to create her as an amputee? So she has one and a half legs. I When I was in school, I think, or maybe I'd shortly gotten out of school, I saw a woman waiting for the bus who was an amputee and I started thinking about what was her life like? What kind of person would she be? And I found myself thinking about her a lot. And I thought, well, maybe she'd be an interesting character. And on top of that, when I was in school, too, some of my teachers told me, like, oh, you can't write about this or that. You can't write about women because then you're colonizing them with your eyes or whatever or something in it. And that seems ridiculous to me. I mean, that's what writing is about. It's about trying to understand other people. So... Really, that's that's what it comes from, is trying to understand other people, but also try to do it in a way that's that's somehow empathetic and that isn't so... I don't, you know, it's. I didn't want to make a big deal about it either. She's such a rich character, and it's interesting because you have the three women that are prominent in the building. Mm-hmm. There was never a question in my mind about the notion of understanding a woman's perspective. It felt extremely real from a woman's perspective, remarkably so. That's very In fact, nice the only real male perspective is our bee, mm-hmm. our friend, our friend Branford, <laughs> right. Branford the bee. Oh, how embarrassing. Um, I mean, Phil is, is a nice man, mm-hmm. um, the amputee woman's husband. Mm-hmm. Their daughter Lucy, Miss Kitty, is, is amazing. Um, the couple <laughs> on the second floor, that's a very sad story, the, the couple on mm-hmm. the second floor. And then the old spinster lady is very sad. In fact, I was talking to Emily Oberman about you and, and asked her, if you had to ask Chris one question, what would it be? And she wrote back, why so sad? <laughs> I'm not trying to make it sad. I just, uh, I'm trying to capture a, a feeling of life as I've experienced it. And I don't intend it to be sad. But I mean, life is, is generally long stretches of waiting or doubt or anxiety or nervousness and, uh, and in my own case, sometimes, you know, sadness, too. And that's that's part of life. You know, I'm not trying to shy away from it. It's not I'm not trying to make it exciting either. I just want it to feel real. So but I don't I'm not trying to be ultimately very depressing or to bum people out as as those younger than me might say. So um, I really, really admire the movie Tokyo Story. I think it's my favorite movie. And I realized I think maybe the second time I watched it, that he had captured this feeling of life that we spend so much of our time trying to tamp down and repress that suddenly I was feeling this sort of, I don't know what the word would be, maybe kind of heartache or, or um, 
profound sense of empathy or wanting to be good in some way that um, I remember feeling as a child all the time. And then as I became an adult, somehow I figured out ways of repressing it or setting it aside and somehow making it through life without having that be at the forefront just because it became too difficult to deal with. And I think, I mean, if I could even just get one one thousandth of a percent of that into what I'm doing, I'd feel that I'd somehow succeeded at what I was aiming for. Well, I think it's more than one thousandth of a percent. I think that one of the most remarkable characters in building stories is the building, the building itself. And the building has its own soul. The building loves the pitter-patter of pink feet and tracks keeps track of how many people live there, mm-hmm. how many pregnancies, removed radiators, squashed bugs, telephone calls, orgasms, punches, screams, breakfasts, and so on. What made you decide to give the character of the building such a realness, such a humanity? Well, on one hand, it is the sort of uh, self-conscious creative construction on the part of the of the woman to write for her creative writing class. It's one of those big ideas that you try when you're a beginning writer or artist that sometimes can go horribly wrong, but then other times can somehow open up possibilities of feeling that you might not otherwise have expected. So, And on the other hand, it's just simply something I am interested in and uh, think about a lot. I think about what, you know, the history of a building and the things that have happened within it. It sounds crazy, but if you start thinking about a building, it can almost start to seem like a like a living organism through time. My friend Tim Samuelson, who's the cultural historian of the city of Chicago, really genuinely feels empathy for buildings and for what they've experienced through various generations. And I thought he's been a big influence in my life in that way. You state in the book, this is an actual quote from building stories. <laughs> oh, no. Who hasn't tried when passing by a building or a home at night to peer past half-closed shades and blinds, hoping to catch a glimpse into the private lies of its inhabitants? Anything. The briefest blossom of a movement, maybe a head bobbing up, a mysterious shadow, or a flash of flesh seems somehow more revealing than any generous greeting or calculated cordiality. Even the disappointing diffusion of a sheer curtain can suggest the most colorful bouquet of unspeakable secrets. And you then go on and you give the amputee character a statement, and she says, I know it's dumb, but I can't help it. Ever since I was a kid, I felt sorry for things no matter how inanimate. I would get so carried away, I'd hug a table leg or kiss a chair goodbye. I'd compulsively dare myself to grant a personality to anything and everything. Do you do that in real life? (laughs) I used to, yeah. Me too. Yeah, I I used to kiss the television at Christmas time when there were... um, you know, those holiday specials on, because I know I wouldn't see him again for a year. I kissed Mr. Rogers. You did? Oh, that's wonderful. He's one of my great heroes. Fred Rogers was one of the greatest Americans who lived in the 20th century, so. Yeah, I loved him, and I kissed him on television. that's very nice. (laughs) I'm sure he would appreciate that. There's a wonderful interview with him. uh, It's a documentary about him where he's being asked about what he was trying to do, and he 
answers the question in this incredibly, I can't even put it into words, where he says there is a sacred space between the television and the children's eyes that cannot be violated. And he says it with such dead seriousness and conviction that you realize that is his whole life. I don't think anybody's worked in that medium before or since that had that. And the fact that he would go, when he would give... He'd be given honorary degrees, and, and I think, near as I understand it, the core of most of his speeches was simply to get up there and offer a minute of silence for everybody in the audience to remember the one person who helped them at some point when they were children or meant so much to them or touched them in some way. And people end up just sitting there and suddenly, like, tears running down their face, you know, because it's suddenly that that moment of, of life and a feeling that, again, you've been kind of forgetting about and... He was, he was on um, The Tonight Show when Joan Rivers was the guest host, and she's, you know, telling her off-color jokes, et cetera. And he comes out, and people are kind of laughing at him, and he's saying, yes, well, you know, being very earnest in his typical way, and people are laughing in the audience. And at a certain point, he says, well, maybe that's why people are laughing, because they're just simply not used to somebody being themselves on television. And Joan Rivers is just frozen. Like, she doesn't know what to say to him at that point. It's such a great moment. Do you believe that... Inanimate objects have some sort of soul. Do you believe that there's that they feel know. things? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I can carry it into Shintoism necessarily, but it's. Uh, I don't know. I, there's something. There's something. Whether it's the urge for just to you know within to connect with the world in some way or to feel something for something or to try to impart into something that feeling that you maybe you feel that you're not getting from other people certainly as a you know as a kid maybe feeling kind of alone or something. Well, it may be the main character's writing exercises for her class, but it's still Chris Ware behind the curtain creating these stories mm-hmm. for us to read. Right. And I wondered how much was your sense of the world versus the characters that you were creating and wondering if your sense of this building having a certain number of pregnancies or radiators removed was something that you were asking your readers to consider when thinking about buildings or thinking about lives or thinking about meaning. Sure, and yeah. and I was just wondering how you think about these things and how you imagine the world to be. Well, it really all comes down to empathy. I mean, if you feel sorry for a building, you're going to be less likely to knock it down. If you feel sorry for a person or try to understand how they're feeling, you're going to be less likely to be combative or suspicious when you meet them. If you feel empathy for a group of people or a nation, you're less likely to attack them. And I just feel like it's what being human is. That's that's the most important thing you can learn. It's the most important thing you can impart to a child. That's what I learned from my my mom and my grandmother, I think it's, I just think it's the most important thing, that's all. In the space portion of the book, when we suddenly meet these characters from the future, (laughs) these few pages where you have this complete break from Mm -hmm. the storyline, one of the characters asks the other, when people's paths cross, is there some higher plan to it all? Do all of these frozen moments just represent accidents or genuine missed opportunities? And I was wondering how you might answer that question. I don't know. I mean, yes. I mean, I think everything has sort of already happened and we're just sort of living our lives through it. I mean, that sounds kind of grim, but... uh 
the two-page spread there is sort of a, in a way, it's kind of a you know presented in a slightly joking way. The the structure of it is this girl and this fellow are waiting for a train, and she's studying for her literature class. And by that time, literature is just simply the energy that's been created by <laughs> people that have lived beforehand, floating around around certain spaces. Uh, and that can then be keyed into by just simply punching it in on the internet. So you experience other people's lives, and that's basically what essentially literature has become. But it seems as if it's inspired or motivated by the main character bumping into someone that Mm -hmm. the reader gets the feeling that she either knows or should know or will know, but that's not ever really... It's actually, yeah, it's supposed to be a, a, a fellow at work to whom she is attracted and then she's stuck in this relationship with her boyfriend in the in the apartment building and she's afraid to break it off and start something new but then she gets on the train and then there's which is you know veering towards sappiness but that's but it's not it's not ever resolved as far as i can tell right yeah and and you don't shy away from some very provocative experiences there's an abortion Mm -hmm. that that really haunts our main character through a lot of the book Mm -hmm. um and her profound profound loneliness her hatred of her body and i think all the women in building stories have issues with their body they aren't happy with who they are they aren't happy with the way they look Mm -hmm. except lucy lucy feels a little bit more confident she does feel like she's pretty and she has a... I suppose. Well, she's about only five five or six. Um, There's also quite a lot of wonderfully evocative sexuality in in the books. There's some great scenes of people having sex and people doing fun things to their own bodies. Um, And I'm just wondering, do you go into different modes of feeling when you're creating these different scenarios? Sure. I mean, you know, it's, uh, again, it's all about feeling through a character and caring about a character, I think. Uh, and also maybe, you know, what's, well, what, you know, what do we read fiction for? It's our finding out. I think Art even said to me once, uh, I don't know who he was quoting, but all our secrets are the same. You know, there's a certain mm-hmm. commonality to what we feel is, is our most deep, dark, personal things. You know, there's a certain amount of embarrassment to fiction, I think, or I think John Updike said he used to read books looking for the little secret moments, you know, that are hidden in there or something. But uh, but there did seem to be quite a lot. I mean, one of the common denominators, maybe aside from the B, Bramford, Miss Kitty, and maybe Lucy, there does seem to be a profound common denominator of self-hatred. Yeah, well, that's probably just, yeah, that's probably my problem because, of course, as the book is filtered all through her consciousness, so fundamentally it all comes down through mine. So so what's that about, I Mr. Ware? Come I, on. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's just, I mean, it's just a personal problem, I guess. It's probably not polite to discuss it in mixed company. It's well, something I, I, I want to discuss it just a little bit because <laughs> it is such a big part of, of what I've learned about you through my research. And th- there's one quote here that I'll share. I think this was in um, the recent New Yorker piece, although I'm not 100 percent sure. It says, Ware has inexplicably seized more awards than anyone in comics history and might be the only cartoonist in the world to have more awards than he has published comics. Yet, big yet here, I read that you get upset when people bring this up. If you were building a Chris Ware, if you were constructing the most celebrated cartoonist of the past couple of decades, drawing up the plans for an Oak Park illustrator, so routinely referred to as a genius that the accolade is more like fact than opinion, the first thing you would need is doubt. 
preferably self-doubt, but uncertainty, self-flagellation, humility, verging on delusion, any of these would work. So why so sad? Well, it's not sad. It's just, I mean, you know, I'll look at my pages when I'm done with them. I'll think, oh, my God, that looks terrible. How could I have drawn that? Or, you know, or why did I do this stupid story? Or I, it fell flat or it didn't work. Or, you know, I don't know. It's just the way I feel. I don't, you know, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I really, it would be really kind of nice sometimes to occasionally feel slightly confident about what I do. But, uh, and there might be moments sometimes where I feel like something came out not as bad as I thought it did. But, uh, for the most part, it uh, doesn't. So uh, I just hope for the best. I try my hardest. That's about the best I can can say. So I, but I do very much envy writers um, who seem to not feel that way. So uh, I don't know I don't too know. many writers that don't feel that way, and I'm wondering if that's just something about writers and creating anything that's moving. I mean, I think part of what is so moving about building stories is the relatable humanity, you know, this sense, I mean, as as I mentioned earlier, and that all of the women have pretty severe body issues, but I think, I don't know many women that don't. Yeah, my wife had said at one point to me when I was asking her about it and talking to her about it, she said, you have no idea of what, how many times a day women think about themselves or think I'm, you know, too much this or not enough that. You know, she said it's probably every, you know, few seconds or so. This, and she put it as, said it's kind of an assault, you know, that it's just something you learn to live with uh, starting in your adolescence. So. so what made you decide to create Branford the Bee? I can't. I'm not exactly sure if I can say what made me decide, but the the books themselves in the story are supposed to be uh, stories that the main character tells to her daughter at night, like bedtime stories. But okay. the books themselves then sort of try to sum up those kind of weird possibilities of veering off into territory that's probably not necessarily appropriate for a child, but sometimes can creep into a story or you have to cut off when you're telling a story to a kid. I Every morning when I would take my my wife, she's a Chicago public school teacher, science teacher, and I would drop her off and then take my daughter to preschool and then later to kindergarten and then first grade, I would tell her stories. And um, it's I sometimes I would just dread it. I'd think, good Lord, what am I going to do today? You know, it was, it was like doing a daily comic strip again and I would frequently just be working from the seat of my pants and I would... As I was telling these stories, I would have to kind of think ahead and make sure I'm not, you know, killing people as I'm driving the car. <laughs> and uh, my mind would be going off in all kinds of different directions of things that I really, you know, would not tell her, obviously. So, and then other times things would creep in that uh, maybe she wouldn't quite understand, but somehow would just be a way of me alleviating the tension of trying to amuse my child <laughs> while I'm <laughs> driving her to school. So, um, so that's the that's the formal idea behind it. Originally, the character appeared as part of the, there's a four-panel screen, I guess, for lack of a better word, that sort of sums up all of the characters in the building. And the uh, the bee is trapped in the in the basement of the building itself, and the main character lets, lets the bee out. And strangely enough, that actually happened to me, but a year after I wrote the story. Really? Yeah. I was in my basement. I went down, and there's this giant bumblebee banging against the window, and I had to let him out. So Wow. Talk about a higher plan. Yeah. I don't, yeah just pure coincidence. I mean, you know, bees and insects get stuck in houses, and they need to get out. So, And I thought it was a kind of a funny idea to try to write something from the standpoint of an insect. Well, not just an insect, but Branford is really the only male voice mm-hmm. in building stories. I mean, you do 
hear from Phil. You do hear from the second floor angry man mm-hmm. um, and, and, and certainly the, the fathers that pop up in and out. Mm-hmm. But Branford is the only fully fledged male character. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that's correct? I think so, yeah. I, I mean, in learning about honeybee culture, I guess like the women basically do all the work and men are just jerks. Like they, they wreck the hive and like, you know, eat up the honey when they feel like it. They don't do anything. They just wait around to try to mate with the queen and that's their, you know. So I thought it would be funny to try to write about a bee that felt really bad about that. Because fundamentally, that's what we are as humans. If you give in to your human urge, you'll, you know, go out and eat cows and, you know, kill people and do whatever you feel like. But it's the human duty to not do those things and to think, well, perhaps I should curtail those urges and think more about my place in the larger scheme of things. So and that's what he's doing. <laughs> so. He's a wonderful, wonderful character. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. And, right. I mean, fundamentally, that's what you try to do as a parent when you're telling stories, too, is to provide some sense of a moral compass to a child in one way or another, however awkward and messed up it may be, while at the same time weird things coming out in your storytelling that you don't necessarily want your kid to hear. So, I want to talk to you a little bit about one of your other books, one of your early books that I, I actually felt could be very much a part of building stories, and that's Lint. Okay. Mm -hmm. Jason or Jordan Lint, depending Mm -hmm. on what age he is. Right. (laughs) Because he he was living a building story in many ways. I mean, he's – you track his entire life. Mm -hmm. And his life starts out very predictably, and then his mom dies, and then he spends the rest of his life sort of acting out on that or Mm -hmm. or recovering from that or not recovering from that. And it's – very much got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the big difference I felt from building stories where because you don't know where to start and where to end, it could start and end anywhere. Mm-hmm. And and there really isn't a formal end for our main character, certainly. Mm-hmm. Was Lint the first time you really started thinking about the arc of a lifetime? Well, no. I mean, I think it, with the Jimmy Corrigan book, that's it's, true. it's about that, yeah. arcs of lifetimes and how they, they kind of overlap each other and create a sort of shape of lives and a shape of human interaction that we're not completely sensible to except when we're sort of living through them. But the, in the case of the Jordan Lint character, he's one character out of seven in another book I've been working on for as long as I've been working on building stories called Rusty Brown. And he appears in an earlier chapter as the teenage tormentor of the uh, what appears to be the main character in the, in the novel. And uh, it was fundamentally as an attempt to just try to understand that kind of person who might do something mean to to helpless younger children or something. How do you feel about a character like Lint? You wanted so badly to feel sorry for him, but then he seemed like such a nasty person. Yeah, well, I don't know. You know, I mean, the, the ultimate goal was to try to feel something for him and to try to empathize with him as a person. I think that's the goal of all fiction is to try to make the best possible case you can for the surviving humanity of every character, despite how terrible and awful they may seem. Do you like the characters in Building Stories? Does that matter sure. to you? Uh, yeah, no, I do. I definitely like them. Even That's Angry right. Man on the second floor? Sure, yeah. I mean, Although it is very sad when much, he runs but... after his girlfriend by the train and misses her. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, for better or for worse, fall in love with all my characters, which sounds kind of crazy, but... Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, you, you put so much empathy in them, even when they're nasty and bitter and cruel, that you can't help but root for them. Well, you know, there's a reason why people are nasty and bitter and cruel. I think it's sometimes they're not even they're not even sure themselves why they are. So it's it's up to the writer or the reader to figure that out. Well, I think one of the gifts that you give your readers 
is being able to see that if you can relate to those people, and I don't know anybody that couldn't relate to that feeling of loneliness or desperation or anger or fear, that maybe you're not quite as alone because well, those nice characters are, are so real. That's what one hopes for. You know, I want to present what you know life feels like to me, but also hopefully present something that seems uh, hopeful and kind of optimistic. I'm not trying to, to be negative. In one passage in Building Stories, your main character says, I stood there for a second or two in the bathroom that was, for all intents and purposes, identical to mine, and wondered exactly what it was that made lives turn out the way they do. And I'm wondering if you know the answer to that. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I have no idea. That's why I write stories, I guess. So um, it's somehow a combination of luck and accident, what we think of as, as will and impulse and sympathy and empathy and all these things somehow mixed up together. So trying to be good, trying to be a good person. Thank you for being on the show, Chris Ware. Thank you very much. To learn more about Chris Ware, visit drawnandquarterly.com. For an obsessive, exhaustive, magnificent collection of Chris Ware's work, visit acnenoveltyarchive.org. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.